The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Creek Nation was one of five American Indian tribes forced west by the federal government on the Trail of Tears to present-day Oklahoma. That dark history was part of the Supreme Court oral arguments in the case of Jimmy McGurk who was convicted of child rape in Oklahoma State Court and says the state did not have the power to prosecute him for crimes committed on Creek land. But Oklahoma says there was no reservation to begin with. The case has vast implications for criminal tax and regulatory power, and Justice Neil Gorsuch may hold the key vote. Joining me is Jordan Rubin, Bloomberg Law Editor. So Jordan, explain the controlling issue here. So this case is an appeal from a defendant named Jim C. McGirt, and he was convicted in Oklahoma State Court, and he raised a really interesting argument on appeal recently, and that's that Oklahoma state officials actually didn't have jurisdiction to prosecute him uh, because he is a Native American and his crime technically took place on Native American land. And so that's his argument anyway, which raises the question of whether that land actually still is technically a reservation which the state contests. And so that raises all sorts of issues beyond just this one prosecution. And if it does turn out that that land technically is a reservation, then that means that the federal government actually had exclusive jurisdiction over those prosecutions. And so that would call into question a lot of prosecutions aside from just McGirt, in addition to civil consequences as well, not just criminal. Why is there even a question about whether or not it's a reservation? Isn't that something that's usually clear? Right. So Jim C. McGirt certainly says that it's clear. He would point to the fact that in the Creek Nation's 19th century treaty, it does explicitly use the term reservation. But there's really a complicated history of uh, Native American lands and really the history between the government, the federal government and Native Americans and the state government that makes it complicated in some ways to figure out what the actual status of the land is. But one thing about this case is that even beyond the technical status of the land, the justices really, in some ways, were more focused on the consequences of their decision. You could tell that some of them 
were really worried that if they were to rule in favor of Mr. McGirt, of the consequences of that decision, rather than simply the question of whether, in fact, that land still is a reservation. It seemed like several justices did ask questions about, but if we do this, then what happens in this case or that case? Just in terms of the general consequences point, you did have justices, for example, also Justice Ginsburg pointing to the fact that if the court was to rule for Mr. McGirt, uh, she was questioning McGirt's lawyer and saying, you know, all of these really terrible cases are going to be opened up. So that was one thing that they were really concerned with. And then also you saw, for example, a Justice Alito, he was questioning McGirt's side as to the effect of the case on non-Indians, if it turns out that the implication of the ruling is that the eastern half of Oklahoma is technically still sitting on an Indian reservation, which the other side is saying is totally different from how people have been living their lives in the last over 100 years. When the justices ask these questions about if we rule this way, it's going to change so much. What was the answer of McGurk and the Creek Nation? Right. So I think there's there's probably two levels to that. In the first instance, they would say that the consequences that the state claims really aren't that bad. They would cast it as a parade of horribles that won't actually come to be. For example, one thing that they point to is Say, for example, Mr. McGirt were to win this case, and then that would then trigger a bunch of state convictions getting overturned. Those cases could then be retried in federal court. You have the other side saying, with the federal government supporting Oklahoma here, that these federal prosecutors would be too overwhelmed if now they have all this new jurisdiction to deal with. So that's one level to it. Another is that McGirt and the Creek Nation would say that the consequences of the decision really aren't relevant. Really, the relevant question they're focused on is just simply the question of, does the Creek Reservation still exist? And they say that the state and federal government just haven't shown enough to prove that Congress undid the reservation through legislation as is required under Supreme Court precedent. So you heard Justice Gorsuch's name several times by the lawyers in the case because they were citing Gorsuch opinions. Explain why he seems to be at the heart of this case. Sure. So this same exact issue was in front of the justices last term in a different case. But the problem is that Justice Gorsuch was recused from that case because it came from the federal appeals court that he sat on when he was a judge there. And so the Supreme Court deadlocked four to four, it seemed, in that prior case. And so now with this appeal, which comes from Oklahoma State Court, Justice Gorsuch is free to weigh in because he's not recused, and so he can break the apparent deadlock. And so what we saw at the argument was the lawyers really pitching their cases directly to Justice Gorsuch, even though all nine justices were on the line. It was an interesting phenomenon where it was almost an argument tailored specifically to Justice Gorsuch. There was also a lot of discussion of following the text wherever it leads. So Justice Gorsuch is known as a textualist in the tradition of Justice Antonin Scalia, the late Justice Antonin Scalia. So how will that affect his decision in this case? Well, McGirt and the Creek Nation, uh, the tribe that's supporting McGirt here at the Supreme Court, would say that this is an easy case for a textualist and an originalist like Justice Gorsuch because their argument is that they're simply not clear enough of a congressional statement 
showing that Congress wanted to disestablish the reservation. Under these Supreme Court precedents, Congress needs to make a clear showing that they're trying to undo a reservation. And the defendant's argument is that that really just hasn't happened here. So a ruling that comes down to just a straightforward ruling on the text, as opposed to worrying about the consequences of the decision, McGirt is arguing anyway, then that's an easy win for him. So they're hoping that Justice Gorsuch does wind up ruling in what they're anyway viewing as this textualist way. So what could you tell from the questions that he was asking at the oral arguments? Anything? Yes. The questions definitely favored McGirt and the tribe. Uh, You're probably, if the case is going to come down to Justice Gorsuch's vote, um, as it does seem that it could be, then it really does seem like it is looking good for McGirt and the tribe. And if you're the state, you're probably concerned with the questions that he was asking them. Really, Gorsuch uh, had a bunch of questions for the state's lawyer, essentially saying that he disagreed with their approach and also disagreed with their claims of negative practical consequences. So if this is coming down to Justice Gorsuch's vote, then that's probably good news for McGirt and the tribe. Hasn't Justice Gorsuch recently written an opinion that indicated that at some point, if you're going to follow the statute, let the consequences be what they may? Right. So there was a recent opinion that came out in another context that came up during the argument today, and that was Justice Gorsuch's somewhat recent opinion in a case called Ramos against Louisiana, and that was a case that involved unanimous jury verdicts. And that was another somewhat close case where, again, similar to here somewhat, you had the state arguing that if the defendant Ramos won that case, there'd be all of these negative consequences of previous non-unanimous convictions getting overturned. And And Gorsuch said, essentially, in one part of his opinion, well, whatever the consequences may be, we just have to render the decision that we think is the correct one here. And so in this argument today, which of course was in a different context, McGirt's lawyer, he cited the Ramos opinion right at the beginning of his argument. And so it seems that McGirt and the Creek Nation are hoping that Gorsuch takes that same sort of approach that he did in the Ramos case and just straight up rule on the law without worrying about what the state is saying is going to be these disastrous consequences. And with the 4-4 to decision, was that along ideological lines? Was it conservatives versus liberals? So the thing is, given sort of the opaque nature of how the Supreme Court operates in some ways, we actually don't know what the internal vote breakdown was of that last case. All we know is that the court said that it's going to set down the decision to decide at a later point. And so it just so happens that the speculation from that is that the justices were, in fact, deadlocked because otherwise, if there was able to be some kind of 5-3 decision, one imagines that they would have rendered it. And so this is something that court watchers are speculating was an internal deadlock. There hasn't really been an argument showing otherwise. And so that's what lends people to say that you have Gorsuch who's going to come in and break this 4-4 deadlock by casting the fifth vote. And how would a decision in this case affect other tribes' lands and whether they're reservations? Would it have an effect on other tribes? It definitely could, and that's part of where the state's concerns come from. So the Creek Nation, along with four other tribes, basically take up the eastern half of Oklahoma. They were the five tribes that were forced west by the federal government on the Trail of Tears in the 1830s. 
And so given that these other tribes also have similar histories and setups to the way that the Creek Nation was established, if in this case here, the justices say that the Creek Reservation still stands, then that same logic could apply to the other four tribes too. And that's what leads Oklahoma officials to worry about losing jurisdiction over Indians in half the state because this law called the Major Crimes Act gives the federal government exclusive jurisdiction over crimes in Indian country involving Indians. Let's say McGirt wins. He right now is facing a life sentence in Oklahoma State Prison for raping a four-year-old girl. Can he be can he be retried by the federal government or is the statute of limitations? No, he can be retried by the, the federal government. And that's an argument that he himself makes, not just as applied to his own case, but as applied to other cases, too. If these convictions get overturned, then people can be retried. Now, it's another question entirely whether the federal government would be able to put on an effective prosecution if a lot of time has gone by since the alleged crime has taken place. And that's something that uh, came up during the argument as well, going against McGirt. But at least in theory, if these cases are getting overturned, then the federal government can pick them up. But in practice, it's probably more of an open question as to whether the federal government would actually seek to re-prosecute every single state conviction that might get overturned if McGirt wins. So going broader than this case to the oral arguments themselves and how they've been going, it seems as if things were going quite well until the flush <laughs> in in the, the last case on Wednesday. How are people reacting to that? Is it likely to scare the justices off from these kinds of oral arguments? You know, they might use that as an excuse to not do this sort of thing in the future, but I think it actually serves to underscore how well these remote arguments were going besides all of that. And so I don't see why something like a toilet flushing during a remote argument, I don't see why that would stop the justices from doing live streaming of arguments in court where there's not a toilet. And (laughs) I think if anything, um, it speaks to the fact that they should be doing these arguments over video because one hopes anyway that that would act as a deterrent to that sort of thing. Thanks, Jordan. That's Jordan Rubin, Bloomberg Law Editor. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, 
from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Lawsuits to hold China accountable for its handling of the COVID-19 pandemic are multiplying, seeking billions of dollars in what is a real uphill legal battle. Joining me is Patricia Hurtado, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. So, Patty, who is filing the lawsuits? It's a variety of different entities. There are lawsuits filed by the state of Missouri and the state of Mississippi is also threatening to file a lawsuit. Different uh, individuals are filing lawsuits, and there's uh, two class action lawsuits filed in Florida. The lawyers for their group say they're getting tens of thousands of people signing up. Everybody from a surfboard shop owner injured in Florida because the business has died down, restaurants uh, that have collapsed because there's no business and because of the stay-at-home orders, to people, that healthcare workers that were injured on the job or that victims of, of COVID-19. Who are they suing? Are they just suing the government of China? Well, they're suing the Communist Party as well as the government of China under a 1976 law is the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which allowed lawsuits to go forward uh, against state governments, but with some restrictions. And it actually stems from early lawsuits that people were individuals trying to sue for claiming ownership of a warship that was taken in Philadelphia in 1812. So this goes back to the schooner times of trying to sue entities and hold who owns something, who's responsible. And this is a tort lawsuit. So they're saying injury, China held secret the virus and the outbreak kept it from the World Health Organization, and therefore they should be held accountable. They're also suing the Chinese Communist Party as well? Yeah, that appears to be an attempt to get around. There are sovereign protections, and some some experts say that these lawsuits won't survive challenges in the courts because China as a country is a sovereign and it has immunity. It's a, it's a state, a government that has immunity under the Sovereign Immunities Act. There are some exceptions which say you can sue for tort, for injury of some kind of commercial exception. If there was some kind of commercial activity that causes damage in the U.S., those tortious acts or those harms, that injury and injured Americans can render the protections invalid. So, But this suit alleges that the Communist Party is also susceptible to the lawsuit because, in essence, they're arguing the Chinese Communist Party tells the Chinese government what to do so that the Chinese Communist Party can be held responsible. So all these attempts to get around the sovereign immunity problem, are they usually successful in court? 
No, they have not been successful in court. There have been lawsuits that were brought, for example, against Saudi Arabia after the September 11th uh, terrorist attacks. They tried to hold the victims of the September 11th attacks, tried to hold Saudi Arabia uh, responsible for uh, basically helping indirectly finance al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. And um, those lawsuits were uh, were challenged, and then uh, Congress responded by overriding, so there's a terrorism exception now in, in the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. There's also been, uh, there was an, a big dispute in Sudan also for uh, trying to hold uh, Sudan responsible for terrorist attacks. And that was also um, determined that they never could serve Sudan, the government, you know, serving a, a country or serving a defendant saying, hey, you're being sued. There's difficulty. How do you serve a country? Right. So that's what sometimes the lawsuits have not prevailed. But there are many uh, legal experts that have said to us that the challenges are very significant to the survival of these lawsuits. And also, some members of Congress are trying to pass some kinds of bills to cut more holes into the sovereign immunity protection? Yes, they're trying to actually hold, like, a basically hold China responsible uh, kind of legislation to kind of keep, give the loopholes to these lawsuits to allow them to survive uh, any challenges China may give. Now, one of the claims in this lawsuit are interesting. They're arguing that there were these virus labs in Wuhan where there was a pathogen leak from the lab. There were scientists and virologists studying a horseshoe bat in caves in China, and they got the virus, and somehow there was a pathogen leak it was a uh, gone, you know, that, that leaked out and leached out into the community of Wuhan, and that's how it ended up in, up in the wet markets. There's also a claim um, by some that there was this is a bioweapon gone terribly wrong, and that China should be held responsible. It remains to be seen how those survive, because legally their courts have been very skeptical of such claims. And China has said this is completely wrongheaded. China denies any of this happened. They deny there was evidence of any bioweapon. And some scientists have also said, you know, the, the scientists in Wuhan that were studying viruses were actually legitimately doing work that was helping help the SARS epidemic, for example. So this is the way science, uh, virology and scientific advances are made when you do these kinds of uh, study these viruses. And there was that there's no leak. And from your story, China has been pointing to different times in our history when the U.S. didn't pay for damages. For example, the 2009 H1N1 flu strain or the 2008 global financial crisis. Yes. And China has basically said, you know, what's good for the United States should also apply to China and that, you know, this is a world epidemic and this, this one country cannot be held responsible I mean, some of the claims in the lawsuit are China hid the information, not only from from letting it get out, but also that it, it basically concealed information from the World Health Organization of how serious things were until it was too late. So it does, you know, I mean, it, it becomes an, an issue because, of course, we all now know that President Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo are also blaming China. Some critics have said that this is 
possibly maybe the administration's efforts to point the finger somewhere else rather than owning up to responsibility of what we did and did we do it too late. When I look at these lawsuits, I wonder how are they going to prove any of this? China is a closed country. Are they going to just let this information out? The proof seems like it might be really difficult. It's not only the proof, but if you think about it, this would be many steps to getting to a point where you'd actually have the case would proceed before a federal judge and it would, it would, you know, go to trial or there would be some kind of evidentiary decisions made where there would be a exchange of evidence, right? It's called discovery. But whether or not the cases even get to that stage remains in question. The judge who's presiding over one of the lawsuits in Florida that's got a, a purported 10,000 members, you know, the ones of the people that either got sick or their businesses were harmed terribly as a result of the outbreak in Florida, in southern Florida, that judge has set a September 4th hearing in the matter. Some experts say, you know, ever we even get to the point where there would there would be an exchange of evidence and there would be discovery may not happen just because it couldn't survive the built-in challenges to suing, suing and, and prevailing at, at, even at the early, early fundamental stages. And if they do prevail, let's just say they go to trial, they win the case, how would they collect a judgment from China? Yeah, there's some they, they lawyers that we spoke to that brought the Florida lawsuits said that they think that they could possibly collect from um, there's uh, judgments in of property that's owned by the Chinese government slash Communist Party in the United States. For example, there's uh, businesses that are owned by the Chinese government. So. Um, one possibility is suggested, you know, hotels and entities. Um, and the U.S. government has actually done this. They did it against Iran, and it was a park at Fifth Avenue skyscraper, 655th Avenue. And the U.S. attorney and the U.S. government sued for Iran sanctions violations, and they collected um, and they seized a skyscraper at 655th Avenue. So, I mean, it's that kind of thing where it's amazing to think that the United States, that there's property and skyscrapers all over the country who are owned by countries, foreign countries. So that's one of the places, the way that these guys would like to collect. Also, there's a danger that they might start suing Americans in China because Americans hold a lot of assets in China as well as Chinese holding assets here. Yes, and there's also a worry that um, the Chinese government has also threatened sanctions against the U.S., and they can try to create havoc, trade havoc with the United States if these kind of cases prevail. I mean, currently right now, the administration has left it up to states, some of them red states, to file lawsuits against China. And the next step, of course, will be that these bills that have been introduced in the Senate and in the House to strip China of its immunity, and they would like to also prompt international investigations into Beijing's conduct. So those kinds of things are going on in the U.S., but it depends on whether these stop China measures will get major retaliation from the Chinese in trade and other avenues to go after the United States. Thanks, Pat. That's Patricia Hurtado, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. 
And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.